Oh Lord, we come to you this day, no matter how we've come this morning with the various storms of our lives that we find ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you would speak into those storms. I pray, Lord, that no matter where each and every one of us are this morning, you would help us to put our thoughts aside and to focus solely upon you by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we'd see this story with all its familiarities and see you afresh this day for who you are as your disciples did and that the winds of our lives would cease and we too along with the disciples would say truly you are the son of God I ask Lord all this in Jesus name Amen Last month, Kimmy and I had the privilege of moving my daughter Rebecca and her husband George into their new apartment in Manhattan. It's an awesome place in the city. And one of the benefits that we had, George being a shrewd actor type, negotiated four tickets to see Shakespeare in the Park. I highly recommend it. Central Park, New York City, professional actors. And it's Shakespeare. Now, I know some of you guys say, yawn, 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 Shakespeare. It came to life. Now, for me, that's a stretch. You know my background, right? But I love it. It's just phenomenal. And there's nothing like seeing Shakespeare acted wonderfully and you really understood what was going on. And what I love about Shakespeare is he, as you know, weaves all these subplots that are going on at one time into this one grand glorious story and it was a Midsummer Night's Dream where you have the lovers and then you've got the fairies in their kingdom and all that's going on in the fairy kingdom in the woods and then you've got this amateur group of actors wanting to perform for the wedding led by the notorious and loving Nick Bottom you know it's a great story and how they're all weaving together, and nobody does it like Billy Shakespeare. Nobody. It's, it's, I, I challenge you. Now, as I was reminded of that, that's exactly what's going on here. This text reads like an Act 1 and an Act 2, with subplots and themes for the believers that help us walk with the Lord today as it helped these disciples see Jesus for who he is. Because what we have here is Act 1 is Jesus, you know, walking on the water. And Act 2 is the disciples' response to Jesus walking on the water. And we learn two great things here with subplots within them. Number one, the identity of God. And two, our identity as Jesus' disciples. Those are two big themes. Our identity the identity of God, and the response of a true disciple. So I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. If you're visiting with us, you'll find it in the back of your bulletin, beginning with verse 22. Because coming off last week's text, Jesus immediately tells the disciples to go. He's just miraculously increased a few loaves and fish into a quantity that can feed thousands so Jesus sends the crowd away, and the first thing that he does in the midst of this is withdraw to pray. Subplot number one, the importance of prayer. 
Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. It seems that Jesus, knowing that he's going to be going out into the Gentile regions, needs to prepare himself. And that knowledge that he also will eventually go to the cross, he spends a, an extended evening in prayer. Now, did he sleep? Probably. A little. You know, but it begins when evening comes, which is approximately 6 o'clock. And we don't see him again until this passage, until the fourth watch of the night. That's a division of the Roman military, divided the night up into four three-hour increments. First watch, second watch, third watch, fourth watch. So the fourth watch is between 3 a.m. and 6 p.m. So he's been in prayer nine hours. Maybe took some breaks to take a nap, get some rests. But we should not miss the reason why he went up by himself. If Jesus, who always does the Father's will, needed to pray for such a lengthy period, how much more should extended communion with our Lord be a part of our lives? And it's a fact that many of those great believers throughout church history were those men and women who spent a lot of time in prayer. It is said that Susanna Wesley, with her 15 children, you know, to get away in a time with the Lord would go into the corner and pull the apron over her face. And the children knew, don't bother mother, because she's with her Lord. She had a mighty impact on those children because it was John Wesley who led the English Reformation at, of that era, the great awakening in England was led by his witness and his brother Charles wrote all those hymns that we sing to support the theology of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. So if it's important for them, I think it's important for us. And in a crowd of our size, we have those of you who had wonderful times in the Lord this week, hot with the Lord we have some of you who probably struggled to walk with the Lord this week in prayer. And more than likely, we had some of you whose prayer lives was absolutely non-existent. To all three groups, I say, welcome to the club. Because the reality is, in Christ, we're called into this deeper communion with the Lord, no matter where you are. And Jesus truly gives us a, a rather simple way to follow him. I've shared with, these, with you before, but it's encouraging, especially with what I've gone through this week, because this week we've been celebrating Ben and Amy will eventually be married in November. And so it's been Amy's bridal shower, and Ben had his bachelor party this weekend out in Sandusky Bay, and it's at this time was chosen for me by God's sovereignty that my, with all these house guests coming into my house, my dishwasher just stopped working. <laughs> I, I will borrow thousands of dollars. I'm, I'm, I'm against debt, but I swear to you, I will put it on a credit card in a heartbeat to get a new dishwasher. <laughs> or a washer, or a dryer. Because I'm desperate, all right? The reality is, life happens. Right? 
God knows what I needed, and I needed my dishwasher not to work, I guess. Okay, Lord, I get it. But the reality is God gives us these wonderful targets of prayer in his Lord's Prayer. And last night, I mean, you know, I was, I was sitting down, you know, getting ready for my quiet time. I get a text from Kimmy, can you come here? And we need to get the dishwasher unloaded, the dishes washed, and everything else. And so I didn't get to my time just this way until right before I went to bed. The five targets of prayer. First, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Meaning, you honoring God in your life. God's honor in your life. I would encourage you, just whatever time you have, open up to one of the Psalms. Start to read it. And when a word jumps out on the page, and it will, as you're praying the psalm back to the Lord, usually in most of the psalms, there's a segment of it that helps you give honor to God. Just stay on that text and give God the honor that's due his name. Secondly, we have God's reign in my life. You know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God reigning in my life in my family's life, in my church family's life, in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Third, give me this day my daily bread. That's asking for God's provision. Simply, what are your needs? What does your day ahead look like? Lord, help me. What's your to-do list look like? Bring that to-do list to the Lord. Ask the Lord to intervene. Pray for your family. Pray for your work co-workers. Pray for that, that boss of yours. Pray for, pray for whatever it is that you are currently enduring. And ask, just trust the Lord to work. He's hearing your prayers in Christ. Pray for our country. Pray for revival. We've been praying that all summer long. That we would see revival in us and through us as we go throughout this Pentecost season. Next, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, asking God's forgiveness for where we know we've fallen short. You've heard us in our prayer times asking those things as well. You know, those things that we know that maybe we've fallen short on corporately as well as individually. But going to him where he always is willing to hear and to reconcile with you. And fifth and finally, depending upon God in all of my life. You know, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It means a total dependence upon the Lord. Lord, help me to depend upon you. Help me to be humble and to follow you. There you have it. You know, that takes, it took me about 10 minutes. That's all I had yesterday. Welcome to life. My friends, may we be people of deep prayer. And so there, within this next subplot, is you see God's revealing himself. One of the reasons Matthew's recording these for us is to tell us that, look, this is God. Look what he's done. He's cleansed the leper. He's cured the centurion servant. He's cooled the fever. He stilled the wind. He exercised demons. He healed a paralytic. He stopped a desperate woman's 12-year discharge of blood. He raised a little girl from the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind. He made the mute to speak. He healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And last week, we saw him 
feed 5,000 people from two fish and five loaves of bread. What's Matthew trying to say? Now he's walking on water. These miracles teach us about the nature of the kingdom, but they also reveal the identity of the king. This is God. And in these miracles, we see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the one. The one who, as Isaiah said, would heal the sick, heal the blind, help the lame to walk, the lepers cleanse, the deaf to hear, the dead are raised to life. This is the promised Christ. And we are to see these miracles as 21st century followers, as the one who has authority over all disease and every affliction. But he also has authority over our greatest affliction, which is our own sin, our own natural rebellion. We are to see that he is the one who has authority to heal everything in our lives. And that such forgiveness ultimately comes upon the cross when we trust him. We are to see this Jesus, the name that means Savior, because he is the one who will indeed save us from our sins. And now, he comes to them, verse 27, in the middle of the passage, and what does he say to them? Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He comes to them in the middle of the night, and uses the phrase, it is I. In the Greek is ego emi, which can also be translated, I am. Where have we heard that? Exodus chapter 3, Moses famously tells the Israelites, he goes, Lord, what sh- who should I say to your people sent me? He says, you tell them, I am sent you. The self-existent, one and only God. This interestingly self-existence I am phrase here is also combined with a take heart and do not be afraid. That's interesting. You know, it, it recalls other times in the scripture when God does come with his presence and calm for his people who are going through distressing times. We see this in Isaiah 53 when he says in the famous servant song, Be not, um, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now if you think I'm making too much of this combination, consider that immediately before and after verse 27. There are 99 words in the Greek before verse 27 and 99 words after Verse 27. Do you think Matthew's trying to tell us something here? Jesus is revealing himself, and at the end of his revealing, he says, Take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. They would have understood exactly what he's saying. Is it a coincidence? I don't think so. For what is he exactly doing at that moment? He's walking on the sea. The sea in the ancient Hebrew mind is the most terrifying place, uncontrolling, the place of evil, if you will. And here he is, I am, walking and controlling the evil around them. It's a powerful message. And we tend to look at this and say, well, isn't that swell? 
What a nice miracle, Jesus. But this is not only to say he can walk on water. He's the one who controls the uncontrollable. He controls the sea and walks on the waves. And he draws a line from verse 27 where he says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, to verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him. Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus says he is God incarnate, and Jesus shows he is God incarnate. And the only response is worship and praise. That's why at the end of every psalm, we proclaim glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. Amen. But we don't say it like that, do we? Glory to the Father and to the Son, as it was in the beginning. I hear you. Hey, liturgy can be deadening. It can be the most dead thing in the world if you allow it to be. This is scripture sent to prayer. We're Anglicans. We don't read the, what's written down. We pray what's written down. That's why we pause. One of the first things some of you mentioned to me, you need to speed up your tempo when you lead the worship. I go, uh-uh. We're praying it. Because it has so much rich meaning. Because as that psalm ended today, when we exclaimed that Jesus is the one who's the God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters, glory be to the Father into the Son. See the difference? Because that's who he is. End of Act 1. Little intermission. Got to go to the bathroom. You know? Then we come back. Act 2 is our response. And I'm sure, as I hope you're sure, this passage before us does record a historical event. This is history. But it also functions like a little parable on Christian discipleship. This is what a Christian disciple looks like. And with that in mind, before we get to the main lesson, there are two subplots that are going on here, kind of like Nick Bottom and the actors, and Thisbe, you know. No, this is what a Christian disciple looks like. There are two lesser lessons that I think we need to pay attention to that are pretty obvious here. You probably heard them by some preacher before, but it's worth mentioning. First, if you're a fellow Jesus follower, if you call yourself a Christian, it does not mean you will be spared adversity. You know, notice verse 22 where it says, Matthew says, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew he was sending them into a storm. When he went up to pray, he was probably praying for them. Saying, Lord, help them not to freak out too much. Some of them are fishermen, some of them aren't, but Lord, help them. And the disciples started to sail to the other side, and this, they're at it for nine hours at least. Can you imagine how exhausted they've just spent the whole afternoon feeding 5,000 people, getting the boat immediately, and you've been going for nine hours? They're done, man. They're tired. He knew what they were against. Obedience to following the Lord 
even out of the right motives, does not mean we will be spared adversity. Does not mean there'll be no storms ahead of us. As a matter of fact, there will be. I guarantee it. But that brings us to the second lesson. Nevertheless, Jesus knows the trouble we're in, and he knows how to rescue his disciples from them. He knows exactly how to meet our need and to follow us inside the storm and can calm the storm. Notice that the storm stops. There's a couple miracles going on here. First, Jesus walking on the water. Second, Peter walking on the water. Third, the storm stops as soon as he gets into the boat. Don't miss that. They needed the storm to stop. And he was coming to them ultimately to do that. So the lesser lesson is this. Jesus will not abandon his own. And he comes to us in our storms to save us and deliver us. Now having those subplot themes, however, record a smaller version of our salvation. He rescues those who cry out to Peter, as Peter did, Lord, save me. He does exactly that. But the one lesson I'm certain we're to learn from this passage is the lesson of true trust in Jesus Christ for every disciple. The theme is, what's the nature of true Christian discipleship? What's the nature of it, of a disciple's faith? And here's where Peter comes into play, verse 28. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. But Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. It's interesting. What does Peter's name mean? Rock. He sinks like one. Okay? And Jesus didn't say, you know, like we do our, to our little kids trying to, to do things. Nice try, Bobby. Uh-uh. He picks him up and says, oh, why did you doubt? He didn't say nice try. So what does this teach us about faith? About this rebuke that he gives. And it is a rebuke. It is. Okay? But what we see is rebuked, not for leaving the boat, but for not abiding in faith, not persevering in faith, for losing his focus on Jesus and onto the circumstances. You see, the nature of faith here, and especially for our young people here today, listen to this. This is vital. Get this yesterday. <laughs> All right? It's important. Peter doesn't just say... Um, seem to say, not just, I'm a proud, weak, desperate sinner, save me. That we only need to reach up our hand to take hold of Jesus. Rather, here, the picture here is of walking toward Jesus as Lord. Yes, we need him as our Savior. Yes, we need him to rescue us in the, in the quagmire, in the, the sea of sin that's over us. But we must walk toward the Lord. We must trust in him day in and day out, every hour of our lives. Here, I think, 
we are taught that faith is confident in the object of our faith, not the quality of our faith. Because aren't you glad that Peter didn't have it all together when Jesus reached out to him? Because there's times in life we might have doubts. There's times in life that we're not in a, on a mountain, we're in a valley. And notice Jesus isn't high on doubt here. You know, verse 31, why did you doubt? You see, doubt equals little faith. Not no faith, but less faith than we should have. And so faith is that trust and confidence in the reality of Jesus. It's true. And he also says, faith is in order to have courage to live the life we've been called to live. He says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Because fear is contrary to faith, just as doubt is contrary to faith. You know, we, we see this throughout the scripture. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The old translation was, I shall not be afraid. Right? He will make me to lie down in green pastures. He'll lead me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff will comfort me. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that when we keep our focus on Jesus Christ, through his word, you get more courage to walk the life you've been called to live. And Hebrews 11.1 defines faith as the conviction of things not seen. And it's interesting. We look at that and we say, well, that means that we can trust it even though we don't see. And there's an element of truth in that. But the whole rest of the chapter is talking about people who were noticed historically. These are the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Yes, it's the evidence of the things unseen, the conviction of things unseen. So therefore, we walk. We can have confidence and courage. Because faith is conviction, faith is confidence. And it's also, as Hebrews 12.2 says, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Looking to Jesus as Peter was and then as, as Peter wasn't. And we miss a vital lesson if all we do is focus on Jesus' rebuke of Peter's little faith. Though mixed with fear and doubt, Peter did walk on water. Okay? Got to hand it to the guy. And when he loses his focus, the Savior extends his hand to save him. Like Peter, our trust in Jesus might be small at times. It might be incomplete. It's a mixture of trust and doubt. Nevertheless, God does not wait for us to have a perfect faith before he reaches out to rescue us. The mere presence of authentic trust is required, and periods of doubt say nothing about the legitimacy of our trust in Christ. It's a healthy thing to have doubts, but you take those doubts to the Word of God, in the community of God, not in isolation, together. No matter the fervor of your trust this day, know that Jesus is your Savior, that Jesus will rescue those who struggle with doubts. And so looking to Jesus not once but every step of the way, considering him and walking toward him and focusing on him with eyes fixed on him, not growing weary. 
no matter how high or heavy the waves are in your life, he will be there and he will rescue you and carry you on. My friend Doug O'Donnell in his commentary on this passage closes with doubt not, fear not, confidence in Christ, courage by the means of Christ equals true faith. That's some play, huh? As the curtain closes. It's a great lesson, my friends. And it's not fiction. It's real. And this is how much Jesus loves you. So let's keep our eyes focused on him and follow him with true trust as a people for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you rescued Peter and we, though incomplete at times, reach out to rescue us as we say, oh God, save us. Lord, there, there may be someone here today who, who hasn't done that or hasn't done that in a while. May we all come to you asking you to not only rescue us but to follow you, take hold of you as you reach out your hands and cease the winds of our lives. And may we live lives of true worship for you truly are the Son of God. For we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and our God. Amen.